He was very charming and very polite, but charming in a, in a manipulative kind of way, right? He sounded as if he thought that what he believed in was totally legit and made absolute sense. A lot of references to QAnon and, um, you know, like Biden sniffs kids and things like that. Um, and it was definitely an in for us to say, okay, there's something really interesting here. We want to understand it. It didn't take us long to realize he was part of the Boogaloo ideology, the Boogaloo movement, these accelerationist extremist men who kind of like think the collapse of society is coming anyway, regardless of what we do. And we quote him where he's saying, I asked him, where did you learn that? And he was like, oh, I learned it at the Air Force. So he was he was a member of the Air Force. He was an active member of the Air Force at the time that he got arrested. This is Cloak and Dagger, a podcast about OSINT, technology, and global conflict. I'm MJ Benias. This podcast is powered by Sapper Labs Group. For more, visit www.sapperlabs.com. My name is Gisela or Gisela Perez de Acha. I was born and raised in Mexico City. Um, used to be a human rights lawyer when I fell in love with journalism. In 2017, um, there was a huge earthquake, you might remember it, that just really struck Mexico City. This is an NBC News special report. Good day. We're coming on the air to update you on a major earthquake that has rocked central Mexico, a 7.1 magnitude quake that uh, has caused some buildings to collapse in, in and around Mexico City. We saw several buildings that have collapsed. We've seen plumes of smoke in the air and a death toll that will no doubt rise. We know thousands of people have poured out and flooded the streets here as fear spreads across this region. I think it was one of the first times that I thought I was going to die. Um, but one of the first times, but yeah, like really that, that kind of adrenaline and of the physical danger, it was just all of a sudden, like all the laws of physics were thrown up into the air and everything was shaking. So my neighborhood was deeply affected by that. And, um, I jumped into pretty much coordinating a crowdsourcing campaign to verify what had happened. As news reports immediately hit the airwaves, internet news traffic began to circulate concerning the quake. As the days went by, the aftershocks continued, damaged buildings continued to collapse, and the global community, as well as the Mexican government, began pouring resources into rescue operations, medical aid, providing food and water supplies to survivors. But there was a problem there was tons of disinformation. It was a year after the 2016 Trump election. I just ran a collective of crowdsourced volunteers to fact-check the earthquake and what had happened in the aftermath. So using geolocation, generating maps, creating databases, and relying on submitted information and social media posts, Gisela and her team of volunteers basically provided logistical and information support to the public and government there was a lot of noise being generated, and oftentimes false information was making it difficult for recovery efforts to basically sort out where people and resources were actually needed. And I just absolutely fell in love with journalism. And I knew that it had to be something with open source and 
journalism and kind of like leveraging the power of social media for that. So I went to study my master's at the Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. And now ever since I've fallen in love with the idea of uniting open source and investigative reporting. So jumping from being a human rights lawyer in Mexico to an investigative journalist, Gisela focused on extremism and disinformation. It was really hard because, first of all, I already had a law career, but it was also very humbling and I had to untrain myself and then relearn a new craft. Um, Sort of like the lawyer bias of like walking in to a space, you know, it's always the law first. But journalism is about the people. So it's not like a law applied to a person, but it's a person and how that person's story fits within the policy or the law. So I literally had to unlearn the lawyer bias and then relearn the craft, really, because that's what ultimately journalism is. I've published with the New York Times, ProPublica, the Associated Press, and um, co-produced radio on Reveal. Honestly, these are like serious publications. So Gisela leaves law, becomes an investigative journalist who uses OSINT, and she even gets a gig teaching at Berkeley School of Journalism, where she basically teaches OSINT techniques to budding journalists. So in May of 2020, when we were on our first pandemic lockdown, (laughs) I don't even know what that Um, era of our lives was anymore. Preach. I mean, the pandemic was this bizarre two-year period. But from a disinformation and extremism perspective, these two main beats of Gisela's, well, it was a pretty busy time and also very tragic. Overnight, nationwide unrest. We do want justice and we want equality. And if we don't get that, We're gonna be out here. Large crowds of demonstrators in multiple cities getting more violent following the death of George Floyd. After George Floyd got murdered, um, there were a lot of protests all around the world and really mostly all around the the US. So Gisela began tracking the various groups that were participating in the protests and the counter-protests and the online chatter that was shaping the various narratives. Remember, This was 2020. Disinformation was everywhere. I worked for almost a year on the story that starts right after George Floyd died in um, May of 2020. So this man, Stephen Carrillo, drives by a van and shoots a security guard in Oakland, California, during an quote, quote, Antifa Black Lives Matter protest. I can just imagine the chaos. I mean, the Oakland protests saw a lot of arrests and moments of violence in response to the death of Floyd. And during all that, in late May, this guy, Stephen Carrillo, rolls up in his white van and shoots a security guard in front of a federal building and takes off. Police begin investigating, and a week later, a neighbor of Carrillo's calls in a suspicious white van parked in the neighborhood. A neighbor called about a like a white van that was parked outside of their house, and then the sheriffs came, and Carrillo, I think, must have gotten scared or thought they were into them, and he sniped a sheriff, according to police files. 
So the police come to investigate the van, and Carrillo basically panics. He shoots and kills a sheriff, and a, a gunfight ensues. Carrillo flees on foot with a bullet wound near his hip, and at one point during the situation, he even uses a homemade bomb to try and blow up some police officers. There's a massive manhunt, but eventually they track him down, and they're able to arrest him. And this all began for Carrillo because he killed a security guard in Oakland. And the wildest part... He was hoping to blame Antifa for it. It was a fascinating turn of events and how it went, so I just stayed on that story for nine months. Literally nine months. Okay, so let's just hit pause here and reset. Stephen Creo goes to the protests in Oakland where he intends to kill someone and blame it on Antifa. And he does. He shoots and kills Pat Underwood, a federal security officer, while he's sitting in a guard shack. Then, when police show up at his house a week later, he shoots and kills Sergeant Damon Gutzwiller and injures a whole bunch of other law enforcement officials in a shootout. And Carrillo, this guy who used a homemade AR-15, basically he assembled it himself, and because it's built from parts, it doesn't have a registration number, it's what's known as a ghost gun. Anyway, this guy builds this AR-15, and he also has homemade bombs and a ballistic vest. I mean, he knew what he was getting into, which prompted a really big question in Gisela's mind. Who was this guy, and more importantly, what pushed him to commit these horrible acts? Like, what makes him tick, you know? Like, getting into his brain to understand his mindset was an essential, essential question here. So, the first thing that happened is that I got his Facebook page. Uh, I captured it with Hunchley. Yay, Hunchley. I uh, love you. <laughs> And right before the FBI had had, had it taken down, I just kind of like, as soon as he got arrested, I jumped on Facebook and captured everything on Hunchly. If you've never used Hunchly, you should check it out. It's basically a tool that scrapes any web pages you visit and downloads a copy to your computer. So you get the whole page, not just a screen grab. It's pretty much an essential OSINT tool. Um, and that became a fascinating in because first of all, we found his brother. And then secondly, we could tell who had liked his photos um, and who he was friends with to a certain degree or like the groups that he liked, right? And since this was so early on in the pandemic, I think it also, I don't know, I think it was kind of like a tipping point that really radicalized a lot of people. Um, but anyway, that's a different story. So we started kind of like seeing the type of content that this guy was posting and the types of groups that he liked and um, it was interesting to sort of like see that happening and bubbling up. And at the same time, one of my colleagues, Catherine Hurd, she um, messaged his brother and his brother responded, right? So we had a source and we had a live developing situation where this guy who was just arrested and accused of killing two officers of the law had a really meme-like radicalized Facebook page. Uh, it didn't take us long to realize he was part of the Boogaloo ideology, the Boogaloo movement, these accelerationist extremist men who, mostly men, who kind of like think the collapse of society is coming anyway, regardless of what we do. So the Boogaloo movement, and even the term movement may not totally fit here, but it's this really loose collective of people who hold some pretty extreme social views. They're sort of this hodgepodge of guys from other groups and militias who kind of just go online and post tons of conspiracy theories in hopes to incite conflict. 
the Boogaloo, the conflict, not the song, is basically what they believe will fix America. It's kind of a mix of a race war and political revolution, and they do occasionally gather in public, and the overall ideologies are pro-gun, right-leaning libertarianism, and they're also generally anti-government, and they heavily dabble in white supremacy and neo-Nazism. You can't really pin every member down under a specific ideological banner, because they aren't really an organized militia. But basically, they load up on guns, make memes, and create plans online. Prepping. It's already here. Doomsday is here. So we might as well arm ourselves and have the most weapons in the story. <laughs> the, the one with the most weapons wins in their ideology, right? Boogaloo adherents have been involved in a lot of acts of violence, like inciting riots and threatening law enforcement over the last couple of years. They've attended Black Lives Matter protests, armed with their rifles all over the country, as well as protests over gun control legislation. And five deaths have been linked to perpetrators who were followers of Boogalooism. Carrillo himself often posted online, on related forums and social media. The day he killed Pat Underwood, the guard, the van he was using was covered in Boogaloo slogans and phrases, and when he was eventually arrested, a ballistic vest that was found in the van had some Boogaloo patches and symbols on it. And that's how I got involved, because uh, his brother, uh, Stephen Carrillo's brother, put us in touch with Stephen Carrillo's um, fiancée, Silvia. And Silvia only speaks Spanish. She doesn't speak English. And that's how I got to talk to her. And um, she was one of the most important sources in that story. So Carrillo is sitting in a cell and no one can talk to him. The police won't say anything. And the only people who have access to Carrillo are his lawyers and his family. Gisela now has an in. She knows the guy's brother and his fiance. Maybe they could help shed some light on why Carrillo went from being an online internet extremist to a very real one with two murders and a whole bunch of other charges. So let's talk about the brother. What was the brother like? The brother was an absolutely lovely, professional, serious person. Did, did the brother didn't believe in the stuff that like like Stephen not at all did. not at all uh, okay so the brother was not into the boog a lovely guy and then he helps Gisela get in touch with Sylvia Carrillo's fiance the brother helped us connect over WhatsApp I connected with Sylvia over WhatsApp first and then we did a Zoom call and then you went to her home like you traveled to see her and then I traveled to see her yeah. Can you tell me like where like where did she live? What was it like? Can you describe it? Um yeah, so I I can't I can't really say the town itself and I'm also not that's sure fine. that's still accurate, but let's just say that she lived like 3 hours away, 2 hours, 2 3 hours away from the Bay Area by car. So California, 3 hours away from San Francisco. In a very rural town and she kind of lived in this um housing unit i guess with like a lot of like small houses that they just all look the same and i think by that point the first time that i went there sylvia and i had been um texting and calling back and forth for over i think three months or two months so the first thing that happened was that before so i'm gonna backtrack a little bit right the first thing that happened was that 
I told her to tell Steven that I was talking to her and that if he ever wanted to tell the side of his story, then we would be open to listening, right? So, and then I think Steven Carrillo wrote me a letter. I think he wrote me a letter. Isn't that crazy? Like on paper? Me, on paper. And then Sylvia took a photo of it. Did she give it to me? Did she ever give me the original letter? She never gave me the original letter. Oh my God, I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about this for a while um, because we didn't publish that letter. So the letter was really QAnon-y, like it had a lot of references to QAnon and, um, you know, like Biden sniffs kids and things like that. Um, and it was definitely an in for us to say, okay, there's something really interesting here. We want to understand it. And would he be willing to talk to us? So that's when Sylvia was like, okay, but if you want to talk to him, then you have to come to my place because only family members have the app to the Santa Rita County Jail where you have the authorization to call people inside the jail. So it was like an app that I, you had to have from the jail itself. So it's not like I could download it and get on it, you know? Um, so I had to go to... Sylvia's house and called Carrillo at the time that she had her visit with him uh, online. Um, were they like living together or do they live in separate homes and they were engaged to be married? Just, just so like, is this, this is his house too? So no, he was living from his van. Um, and yeah, kind of like stayed with Sylvia a lot. Sylvia had a kid. So he stayed with both of them a lot, but especially in the pandemic, but he lived out of his van and never wanted to move in a drawer or clothes or anything. That's, is that strange? That's strange to me. Does that seem strange to you? I feel like this is weird. I mean, yeah, it was clearly, yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, weird. So Gisela spends months building trust with Sylvia. Did she agree with his philosophy? Of, of boogalooism and, and extremism and QAnon and all that? Like, was she part of that world? Not at all. I mean, Sylvia was a Salvadoran immigrant, you know, who got dropped by her parents when she was 16 here in the U.S. and grew up totally alone. So um, a very hurt and troubled person herself. But she, she was not into the Americanism ideology at all. Um, which was interesting. She was also just a very nice, hardworking person. So Carrillo's brother and his fiance are not into any of it, which makes it even more important to get in touch with Carrillo himself. And the only way to do that is to use Sylvia's phone and this app that the jail provides for the families of inmates. So a time gets booked. Gisela is at Sylvia's place. Sylvia dials into the app and hands the phone to Gisela. And I was very nervous. Can imagine, yeah. Um, so, so you you interviewed him. The first time we just talked over the phone. We actually spoke Spanish the for, um, during our first call, um, which I think also speaks a lot about identity and about how extremism is a lot more nuanced. Uh, it's not like just white guys covering white guys, but there's a lot more to it. I feel to the beat itself, and it'd be awesome to have more people of color cover it. Um. He was very charming and very polite, um, but charming in a, in a manipulative kind of way, right? He really thought that 
what he believed in was, he sounded as if he thought that what he believed in was totally legit and made absolute sense, right? And our deal was that we were not gonna talk about the cases. We couldn't talk about what he was accused of uh, or the pending trials because at the time they were pending. But I just wanted to hear more about his ideology and where he learned all of the political things that he wrote about in the letter. And that's how we, that's how the conversation started. Definitely smart guy, very smart guy. And uh, we talked for 20 minutes. So it was really quick and they had to prepare a lot. So then after talking to him, I made sure that it was recorded uh, and that was great. I was very happy that it was recorded. So I transcribed it along with my notes, the notes that I had taken um, uh, during that visit. And the first thing that you do is that you call your editor. <laughs> um, and in this case, it's David Barstow. He's like an incredible um, mentor and um, partner in storytelling. Um, he has four Pulitzer Prizes. He's the most impressive person on the planet. <laughs> so I called him and it's kind of like you, you do a little bit of team back. And, um, and then we wanted to see if there, another, a second conversation was possible. So uh, the second conversation that I that I had with Stephen Carrillo was over an hour and 15 minutes. So I think overall, I talked to Stephen for almost two hours. And it was all about what he believed in and what he thought of and where he had seen it, right? And what he had learned and how and where. And that's how we got to him, literally. And we quote him where he's saying, I asked him, where did you learn that? And he was like, oh, I learned it at the Air Force. Wait, what? Carrillo learned this stuff while in the Air Force? He was an active member of the Air Force at the time that he got arrested, yeah. He was stationed in Vacaville, California. He was an active Air Force security guy. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, what did the Air Force think about all this? Well, I mean, fast forward, of course, and then we're about to publish and there's a line in the story that says that I think at least we found at least 15 active duty airmen in Carrillo's Facebook um, ecosystem, active duty airmen publicly sharing Boogaloo content um, online. So this was a year later, right? Like we published on the very end and that's when the Air Force, we had to contact the Air Force and say, hey, what's your comment, right? They said that uh, they said that you know that they um, condemn any act of uh, bigotry or something along those lines. They essentially said like, "Oh, this is not in line with our social media guidelines, so uh, super bad, and we will make sure that people who violate the social media guidelines will be corrected," kind of thing, right? So like broad institutional. Wow. Yeah, broad institutional, but um, definitely very interesting because we had a fact check that there were indeed 15 active duty men, right? We had to go one by one and make sure that they, we found them on Facebook. We found them through OSIN, but that's not enough, right? What if, whatever, what if they're not active anymore because they got fired yesterday or they, you know, quit yesterday, like if my story is today. So we had to call the Air Force and go through them one by one with the evidence that we had gathered from Facebook posts really just like crying out for the revolution, right? Or the insurrection. And like, think about it. Think about it. This is, I don't know, 
eight months before the Capitol riots, right? Like six, seven months before the Capitol riots. So he was definitely one of the first who marked sort of like the arc between the killing of George Floyd and then extremists at like um, the Capitol riots. Um, so yeah, that's what the Air Force said. Wow. Okay. So Carrillo learned about all this stuff from his buddies in the Air Force. I mean, this isn't surprising. There are tons of examples where folks in the military fall into the extremism trap. Like, of the 900 people who were arrested in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, 135 of them had military or law enforcement backgrounds. And we know of cases where extremist groups target active military service members and even veterans to join with their club. A survey was done in 2020 by Military Times, and they found that more than one-third of all active-duty troops and more than half of minority service members say that they personally witnessed examples of white nationalism or ideological-driven racism within the ranks. Even Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, he was an army veteran, decorated and all. But just because someone is in the military doesn't mean they get brainwashed into joining some extremist movement. I mean, there has to be something more. I mean, he was clearly unwell, psychologically speaking. He was clearly unwell when all of this happened. Sylvia, Carrillo's fiance, she told Gisela about Carrillo's decline. But it was actually the pandemic that actually just was the, the, um, I don't know how you say that in English, sort of like the drop that spelled the water, I don't know how to say that. Say it in Spanish. Um, la gota que derramó el vaso, kind of like the tip of the ice, the, the tip of the, the cherry on top kind of thing, but it sounds better in Spanish. Um, it does, yeah. <laughs> so it was definitely, what she says, it was actually the pandemic. So it was a combination of things, right? Like first that he traveled a lot, he was like a um, security force in the Air Force. So basically he was just in charge of guarding planes in like these, you know, like war-torn countries. Um, so he just traveled all around the world, like securing aircraft. Carrillo was a staff sergeant with the U.S. Air Force. He began his service in 2009 and served as a member of the Phoenix Ravens, a unit that guards American military assets and personnel in unsecure foreign locations. So he knew a lot about weapons, right? But he also, he had to stay up for long periods of time guarding the airplane, they weren't allowed to take any um, sleeping medication or like anti antipsychotics or anything like that because it was policy that it kind of like impedes you to do your work or uh, use weapons, right? So we'll, it was definitely a combination of things. Carrillo's life was haunted by a lot of trauma. Prior to meeting Sylvia, Carrillo's first wife of nine years died by suicide in 2018, and his life began to spin out of control. He was stationed at Travis Air Force Base, and while there, he found a group on Facebook called California Commando, and this community was heavily tied into the Boogaloo philosophy. Shortly after, his interest in the Boog went offline, where he joined the Grizzly Scouts, a local militia group. I don't think, it, I, I think sort of like having that kind of job and then being stuck at home because of lockdown for months. Uh, he was increasingly spending more time on the internet and he was increasingly sort of like unwell. And that was her approach. That's what she said. She said that it was just, he was just unwell. What do you think of that? I think there is a fair amount of that in our story. 
I think for, for sure. Um, I think it is fair to say that he wasn't well. And it shows in the story that we published. So he was in a lot of ways, like, of course, psychologically prone to conspiracy theories and believing them and embodying them and enacting them um, because of this wounding and this sort of like desperate need for um, belonging to a, an identity or a specific type of society. This all makes me kind of sad. I mean, I wonder if aspects of his life were different. The tragic loss of his wife, joining the Air Force, or even logging into social media during the pandemic. Would even one shift in that lineup of life events alter the trajectory of all this? And is that what makes extremists extremist? Some seemingly random life events that just amount to luck? How can we even deal with that? You know, this this idea of, of extremism and and how it spreads... Stephen himself was sort of primed to to believe this stuff. When people become extremists, or when they're when they're indoctrinated into extremist ideologies, um, are, are they, they able to? Are they or not? Are they well? And and is it so black and white as well? Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Be because you know, choice is never just like a, an A B situation here, right? Choice right. Is, is governed by a lot of things. I think it's like half and half. It's always half and half. Like you're a product of your own environment and your own trauma, but then at the same time, you do make choices. And I think the interesting thing is just how the less, the less privileges and opportunities that you have in your life, the less choice you have, the less freedom of, cho of choosing you have than someone who had a lot of opportunities and a lot of um, privileges growing up. So I think in, in, in Stephen Carrillo's case, it was definitely a little bit of both. It was definitely a little bit of like, um, in a sense he was choosing, but how really free was he to choose? I think where the interesting question in his case is how lucid, like w what was at stake in the murder trials is that how, how conscious was he really of what he did because of um, alleged mental illness, um, partly caused by his high-pressured work in the Air Force? That, so that was the legal argument. So what do you think? Was he cognizant of what he was doing or was this part of his like crusade? Yeah. I have no idea. I have no idea. I think it's half and half. It's a fascinating question, but yeah, I think it was literally probably half and half in a very complex kind of way. I, I know it doesn't sound very nuanced, but it, it's just so nuanced that I, 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 have, I can't really think of. I wish I could ask him that. Do you think the internet has changed sort of how, how extremism works? This is a loaded question. Definitely, definitely. I mean, talking about surveillance capitalism, I think it's been very well documented how we live in a filter bubble. We live in this bubble where we just get our biases and views of the world just sort of like reaffirmed through social media. So I think it just radicalizes everyone. I think it really gets you more into your point and your your worldview rather than uh, amplifying our horizons. I think Facebook, Facebook is it's quoted on our story like, oh my God, more than 10 times. Facebook is quoted on our story so much because everyone talks. I mean, a lot of things happen on Facebook, in Facebook. Um, so I think definitely 
for and in this in the case of Steven Carrillo, it was definitely Facebook had a strong role to play. But then also this comes with the other question, which is, okay, well then the, they deplatform these people, they deplatform um quote quote extremists like the Boogle Boys. And then what happens is just that they're harder to find. They go to my militia, they go to Telegram, they go to Reddit or whatever. Um, Parlor, then they get deplatformed from Parlor. <laughs> so it just becomes more hidden and more decentralized and never mind the takedown of posts. And that's where Hunchly really came in because actually by the time that we published, since it was like nine months from the time that we started the story to the time that we published, almost a full year actually, but probably more like 10 months, um, a lot of the Facebook posts posts of the Boogaloo Boys in the Air Force were taken down. A lot of those posts were already taken down. So because we captured it on Hunchly, we wouldn't have been able to publish because it was a really delicate thing that we were saying that Steven Carrillo thinks he got radicalized in the Air Force. Right. You mentioned Hunchly. I'd love to know, how does OSINT battle extremism. Let, let's get into that. Like, let's get into like the nuts and bolts here. Well, what was interesting is that Carrillo, Steven Carrillo had told me that he was part of the Grizzlies or something like that. Uh, he's mentioned something about the Grizzlies. So then I was like, oh, hey, well, I have to find these guys, right? Are, there, are they a militia? Are they a training group? So then I found I found them on mymilitia.com. So I think that's where OSIN comes in and really compliments reporting and investigative storytelling, um, sort of like finding the militia and disinformation and social media aspect of it, and then how that relates to what Steven Carrillo was talking about. We got some, we got the, some contracts and like training guides of the Grizzly Scouts, where they said what type of outerwear was allowed for what type of operations um and they had a recon group like it was very detailed in how the militia was structured apparently steven carrillo signed this and enlisted to this militia um and they just got together to train and shoot weapons in california <laughs> it's really wild For Gisela, OSINT played an essential role in how she was able to confirm details of Carrillo's story and his life in the dark recesses of the extremist and conspiracy rabbit hole. After the story was published, a lot of the people Carrillo knew, the Grizzly Scouts included, began to go underground into the seedier parts of the internet. And not just them, but lots of extremist groups and their rhetoric saw a massive purge off the large social media platforms, the great deplatforming. From a social sort of like public policy perspective, deplatforming is helpful for the message to get to less people, right? It just becomes more decentralized. From the viewpoint of let's figure out how to tell these stories or sort of like get to the bottom of the, these online culty atmospheres, I guess it does. It could become harder. But then it makes it also easier in a way because it's just more contained to one or two platforms. Right. Like Telegram, for example, right now has a lot of that and we know it. So you just go to Telegram. I think the hard part for any OSINT practitioner would be to figure out which platform to go to. But once you figure that out, I feel like overall deplatforming 
is a good argument. Um, I think anything decentralization of everything, including especially on the internet, would be incredible. It's just less people. And I don't know how that would strengthen or weaken the echo chamber, I guess. We'll figure it out. We'll figure out in the next couple of years, right? Like maybe in a year or two, we could take the capital rise and then measure American extremism from there. Because it's also true, like this is very American, right? Um, there's extremism in other parts of the world, but I think it's, I'm talking about a particular breed of American extremism. So after hearing all this, Carrillo and the murders and Gisela's descent into this world, I can't help but think about what this all means when it comes to the future of OSINT and for investigators. We're watching this fast-paced shift in technology and social media and the decentralization of, well, everything. It's like this bizarre rapid evolution. I think it's interesting because we are sort of like seeing the collapse of Silicon Valley in a lot of different ways, right? Like Twitter's not what it used to be, Meta or whatever, right? But at the same time, we're still heavy users of their product and Instagram and WhatsApp. So I think there's, uh, I think there's this, there, there will be a reconfiguration of the space given that social media tech giants could potentially be morphing into a different thing. So I think I'm just on the lookout for better digital security and more accountability to tech companies. Are you a David Bowie fan? Yeah, Like Ziggy sure. Stardust and... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of old school. David Bowie described the internet as like an alien life form because we have no idea what we're dealing with. Just a heads up before we dive into this, this portion of the interview gets pretty philosophical. Giselle and I go pretty meta on this one such a medium as the internet, which absolutely establishes and shows us that we are living in total fragmentation. I think the internet, I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. Just so you know, this interview with David Bowie was done by the BBC and it took place in 1999. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. I think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. It's just a tool though, isn't it? No, it's not. No. No, it's an alien life form. And the ability for it to outpace us and the ability for it yeah. to evolve quicker than we can evolve is 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 incredibly alien to us. Um, we've built something that will move quicker than we can. Like how do we like do we contain it? Do we just let it go? Um, and, and then from, from your perspective as somebody who, who chases bad guys, tracks extremists, um, tracks human rights abuses, like how does that evolution of the internet like complicate things for you? How do you keep track of using all these tools and technologies while still keeping track of the facts, right? Like there's a lot of AI and machine learning being thrown into the space, but then if I can't fact check it, it's pretty worthless. So I'm definitely right. curious. Uh, that's why the social media accountability is a big deal, because I think the OSINT space is also precisely very open source, right? Like pushing for more transparency is open sourcing and just um, that's part of the accountability s uh, section of 
social media companies and algorithms in general, just push for more transparency so that we can audit and fact check and be able to see what happened. Do you think that's happening? Do you think like we're going to get transparency or do you think it's going to be kept opaque? I mean, I think it's, it's opaque right now, right? So I think it's, it's interesting. I think, I think it's worth pushing for more transparency and then doing as much reporting as we can on these algorithms. So I think definitely increasing our digital security and our OPSEC. I think it's just going to get harder and harder to like pierce these underground atmospheres and how to do it safely and wisely is going to become a huge deal. Yeah. And um, that's kind of like the only intuition I can have. I feel like that's just, it's just like this weird, like mental disconnect. It was like a cognitive dissonance concerning privacy. Oh, yeah. Cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Well, I think that's what surveillance capitalism did. Right. Like when I say surveillance capitalism, it's sort of like, I don't know, the how social media companies actually profit on our oversharing. Right. Like the new Internet capitalism is making money off of clicks and advertising and eyes on your website. So that's kind of like the interesting cognitive and social part is how <laughs> these algorithms in a really messed up kind of way, they trained us to overshare. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they rewarded oversharing, right? So that's surveillance capitalism. And then in that context, I think, yeah, when you think about it, it's a cognitive dissonance. But at the same time, as an open source practitioner, practitioner I'm like, yeah, keep doing it, you know? Right, like, exactly. Yeah, are all the extremists, extremists uh, oversharing on Facebook? Great, better for me. So that's also where the other part comes in, the digital security part. Um, when it's, you know, it's kind of like two sides of the same coin, right? Because on the one hand, we leverage um, everyone's oversharing and sort of like everything being made public all the time on the internet. We're leveraging that, but at the same time, I'm protecting myself. We're protecting ourselves. We know what open source could do and what we do with it. So the other side of that is, yeah, your digital security and your um, OPSEC, for sure. Right. Like you, 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 you hope for people's like inadequacy in those areas so that we can like utilize it for our own advantage. Exactly. And I think to, to me, the angle is the public accountability angle. And there you go. Public accountability and transparency. I mean, these are exactly the things that OSINT attempts to do. It allows anyone to shine light into the darkest of places, especially those nooks and crannies of the internet where extremism and disinformation thrive. In June of 2022, Stephen Cudillo's court case came to an end, and he was convicted for murder. He's now serving a life sentence. Thank you to Gisela Perez de Acha for coming on the show. You can find links to her work in the show notes. If you like the show, please give us a rating and a review. Also, you should go right ahead and click that subscribe button. For more, make sure you check out our blog. It helps scratch that OSINT and InfoSec itch you might have between episodes. So visit www.cloakanddagger.blog. I'm MJ Benias, and this is Cloak and Dagger. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you here next time.